Oh, so oh, Dr. Oh, P, oh, what do you think get, you Georgian, made sort Georgian, of cultures? One let me transition. Okay, and we're live. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Uh, we have Georgie and Mr. Raymond Pete on the line, and we are talking about Aristotle. We are talking about forms, ma- matter, uh, deep politics. And so I'm not going to interrupt what we were talking about, but Georgie, go ahead. Yeah, I was curious what Dr. Pete thinks made that, you know, that specific parts of the world amenable to such, such um, contradictory ideas, basically. I mean, uh, is it something in the in the way people saw the world in those different parts? I mean, the way people saw reality in those different parts of the world. Um, why would the Eastern Europe or like Eastern world be so amenable to change and so accepting of change? Well, the Western world will be like, nope, um, you know, we're firmly controlled. That's the only theory that we accept is true. Um, change must be happening everywhere. Why would it take root in certain parts of the world and not others? In the 50s, I, I was considering uh, the Forfian hypothesis that language, uh, the structure of language that uh, has, has evolved uh, in uh, remote history, that the structure of language uh, contributes to that. But uh, I, I um, fairly quickly uh, realized that, that uh, cultural things such as uh, the difference between Aristotle and Plato uh, in the the available uh, literature uh, when people were just uh, barely starting to to get literate. Uh, The the church was a force for literacy, and it happened that the Eastern uh, Christian church got the good Aristotle literature and uh, the West uh, was influenced by uh, Platonism. So uh, I I still tend to uh, think that there are slight differences uh, from the structure of language. Uh, 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 There's a linguist at Stanford who uh, is the contemporary uh, Horfian apologist. Uh, I, I think that can be seen in the difference between English and German, for example, uh, and between, uh, say, Chinese and uh, uh, Hindi. Uh, Chinese has uh, uh, kind of, through through use, it has reduced the, the superstructure of grammatical form and depends greatly on context. And uh, I, I think... There's a noticeable difference uh, between uh, English and uh, the older European languages uh, uh, with uh, more context dependence in English grammar. Okay. Are you familiar with the ideas of the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein? Oh, yeah. Uh, I I, I was... uh, uh, The thing, thing I liked about him was that he... Uh, numbered his paragraphs instead of uh, trying to uh, uh, make make a a grand argument that progressed logically. Uh, He simply made statements and numbered them because he believed that every statement uh, implies a a metaphysical uh, surrounding. And... uh, uh, that I, I had been studying uh, Bertrand Russell and the 
the, the linguistic philosophers who I saw as a, a being a way, not Russell, but the, the people who followed him and called themselves the language philosophers, like John Wisdom. I saw them as trying to sneak in the old Platonism entities, logical atomism, for example, which was Russell's word for it. Wittgenstein blew that up and showed somewhat a resonance with the old Leibniz a universe being implied in every statement or every event implying the surrounding context. Right. But, um, uh, I mean, the, the thing that made impression on me the most is he said there, there's no such thing as private language. There are no private thoughts that cannot be expressed and there are no private fields, as you said in many of your interviews. Uh, uh, yeah, but... Um, when uh, you when you try to uh, work out the implications of there is no private language, uh, you're always uh, guessing statistically that you're understanding that the other person. Uh, if if you can't remember uh, uh, for sure that your own language is uh, consistent and uh, testable. Uh, when, when you look at uh, the other person, uh, you're just making a statistically uh, uh, sounder guess, but uh, the, the, there's no essential difference between uh, a shared language and the private language. Uh, once you uh, realize that they all depend on memory and interpretation. Okay. Um, wow, that's pretty interesting. Well, that leads me to the next question about, uh, you had a discussion with Danny about Lenin, memory, and matter. And basically you said, uh, well, Lenin kind of said that, you know, um, knowledge is memory and it's coming from matter, but it's not matter, right? Um, matter is everything we don't know. So what is knowledge then? I mean, if it's not matter, what is knowledge? It, it's um, the, uh, the the physiological uh, present of matter, and the info is uh, the matter itself that hasn't been incorporated into our perspective. Okay, so would you say that knowledge is simply the structure of matter that we incorporate into ourselves? Uh, yeah, it's uh, living, uh, living matter, uh, and uh, it's always open uh, to living uh, a new phase, and that openness to um, new new life is matter. Okay. The in inflow is all we can say about matter. Understood. It's not denying uh, the materiality. It's saying that this is the, the living matter uh, that uh, is our consciousness, and that is con that's like a, uh, there's an internal fountain in effect, 
it's always going on, uh, going ahead, becoming something else, and that's that's the nature of matter that it's it's uh, creating uh, this constant flow of of knowledge. Okay. Um, so in another interview, I think again with Danny, you basically said that nothing is stored, right? Basically, how we feel about our memories and and knowledge in general depends largely on thyroid function and metabolism in general. So if knowledge isn't stored, I mean, where is it? Like when we when we access a memory, so to speak, what are we actually? What does that process physio- physiologically look like? Um, it's um, some trace in in our. Uh, Facial muscles, uh, viscera, posture. Uh, we've worked through a, a series of reinventions, uh, finding uh, these uh, uh, pictures, which are arrangements of excitations. But uh, we don't go uh, straight to a, a picture. We work. Uh, by by inference and uh, traces uh, to to reconstruct it, uh, and so every every time we bring up the past, uh, we're creating a new past. Okay, so basically, so when we're remembering, we're partially recreating the memory. Um, yeah, it, it's always new, newly experienced. Uh, not, there's a the idea that something is stored uh, becomes part of that uh, Platonist uh, idea that uh, it ends up saying that atoms are are timeless entities uh, and can be uh, accurately described only by changeless uh, units of logic. Uh, you, you can't let change into the, the system if you're in that uh, uh, logical atomism uh, range all the way to Platonism. Uh, re- reductionism is um, denying that uh, atoms, uh, that, uh, an individual atom has a history, for example. Uh, the the uh, memory as reconstruction uh, is that uh, we're uh, like, like a whirlwind of uh, consciousness, but the the shape of our individual whirlwind is always ongoing, but it uh, is moving ahead with uh, some degree of deduction from our previous states. And uh, looking back, it's like a reverse deduction uh, to uh, reconstruct that we must must have experienced that uh, being where we are. And, and and probably one of those same conversations we were talking about. I was asking you some philosophical questions, and you said something like, "You have to start and end with being an animal." And, and, and like, I think you said something like, "An animal reality." Can we? Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I I found that to be pretty interesting. Um, uh, yeah, we're uh, an animal uh, experiencing uh, na- nature around it or people uh, is aware of its needs and hopes 
uh, and also any fears that it has. Uh, it interprets uh, particular uh, objects or processes uh, as either uh, hopeful or fearsome, uh, and uh, other, otherwise it's uh, in the process of uh, going through uh, the pre present situation uh, with the, the intention of uh, finding uh, the realization of, of what it wants. And people have, uh, the culture has piled up uh, beliefs and uh, uh, stories that complicate that so that uh, uh, we we don't see ourselves uh, as uh, uh, surrounded uh, by uh, future, future and, and dangers, future possibilities uh, and threats. Uh, and uh, I think any time you're going to uh, get back on the track of uh, realizing yourself, uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 larger intention, uh, the the thing that religious people uh, feel as uh, some kind of overarching meaning uh, for the, for the animal, uh, the human, uh, uh, hopefully uh, biologically amplified animal uh, doing things that some animals can't do. Uh, by by our energy uh, amplification, uh, we can uh, have the animal intentionality encompassing future possibilities uh, on a, a transpersonal scale, uh, uh, seeing the need for the ecosystem and for the society, for other individuals, even for different kinds of organisms, taking responsibility in a, in a straight line with yourself, uh, feeling that you are responsible uh, for, for all of the stuff around you, uh, that, that you, you see it all as hopeful moving towards the future uh, and uh, don't have any of these cultural kinks that, that say, I own this or... or <laughs> I have to destroy this to do this and so on. Uh, you, you try to pic picture uh, 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 over uh, uh, overarching uh, series of meanings uh, for, so that everything uh, can get into a better future. Are, are you saying, sorry, like, are you saying like an, uh, that amplified rate of metabolism uh, is coexists with a sense of solidarity with other humans like or the Kropotkin mutual aid to, assuming your basic needs are met uh, yeah I, I I see Kropotkin blending in with Vernadsky uh, Vernadsky saying that the the flow of energy uh, from the sun uh, into the earth is uh, uh, trying the, the the substance responding to that flow of energy is uh, creating a, a living structural system uh, that uh, is assimilating and accumulating uh, the uh, interactions of the different levels of the ecosystem, uh, permitting uh, 
the uh, optimizing uh, the, the metabolism of the big animal developing a big brain and doing uh, the things that are appropriate, uh, like animals uh, tearing through the jungle are improving the fertility uh, of the system, not damaging it, uh, like uh, Alan uh, Savory, uh, his rough idea is uh, compatible with Vernadsky, that the big animals are a big part of, of the ecosystems that they develop in, and they are pulling, helping to pull the whole ecosystem forward. Because there are such massive energy dissipating structures? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, a question on the uh, on the being an animal in this world. Are you referring to basically the uh, Pavlov's ideas of the first and second signal system? The first one being first signal system being basically the animal raw perception of reality. Um, yeah, I, I don't uh, see it as as being strictly second. Uh, the, the the first signal system, uh, 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 P.K. Anokan who was a, a, a colleague younger than, than Pavlov, uh, developed uh, the uh, picture of, of the consciousness in this unified sense. He called it the acceptor of action, uh, which uh, you, you can't really separate the orienting reflex or the uh, dominant uh, uh, concept uh, from from the acceptor of action, it, it's the uh, present state of the orga organism uh, in uh, a, a, a pictorial space filling uh, model of the world, uh, and the second signal system in Pavlov's term. Uh, gets its uh, structure by acting as as names for structures in this acceptor of action uh, like like you have a, a little uh, three-dimensional uh, holographic movie going on uh, w with your intentions uh, cycling through this this movie model uh, of the world uh, and uh, the uh, words the second signal system uh, attaches to these uh, each uh, 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 part of the uh, uh, of the model of the world uh, ha has a naming re relationship uh, uh, marks uh, or angles uh, uh, referred to it as uh, a name of, of a ghost uh, but it's uh, the, the language system gets its structure exclusively uh, from this uh, uh, pictorial sort of model, model of the uh, world, the acceptor of action. Okay. Um, yeah, to me, all uh, I mean, the way I understood your book, at least, was that um, intuition was part of like the part of the, the first signal system and then this capacity for rigid analytical abstract thought that that felt like it didn't even need images that was part of the of the second signal system and then the authoritarian 
mind in people with authoritarian tendencies tend to uh, really emphasize the second signal system. In other words, purely abstract thought without any connection to reality, to the first signal system. Um, uh, yeah, I, I did uh, when I was uh, in studying psychology at the university. I did uh, a survey asking people uh, how how they dreamed, as well as uh, their their waking thought processes, and I found that. Uh, there were people who never, who didn't know what it was to dream in pictures. Uh, they said uh, a dream was like uh, listening to someone tell a story. And uh, those people were uh, on a scale of creativity, they, they would be absolute zero. Uh, they uh, followed uh, verbal rules. Uh, some, somehow they could uh, talk to people and seem to uh, communicate in English, but they had no ability to uh, uh, think uh, with any innovation. It was only what could be said in a familiar way. And when your acceptor of action is de-energized, it tends to disappear, uh, leaving just these uh, uh, solidified uh, uh, units uh, of language. Uh, You you can't uh, learn a language without having some fluidity uh, in this uh, uh, model of the world. But by the age of six or seven, uh, people are often losing enough biological energy that uh, they start seeing reality in terms of uh, only the cliches that they can say. What this might be semi off a topic, but like where does personal responsibility, but also like the uh, kind of destruction of the individual from the culture, like where does personal personal responsibility begin where a person is born into a culture that basically sets them up for, for total failure. You know, like I, we're going to talk about vaccines, but when I went home uh, to Southern California, probably a few years ago, my mom gave me a sheet of all the vaccines I got when I was a little kid. And it was like a ridiculous, I don't remember. It was like 20. And so, and I know that's even worse now. So it just seems like uh, as, and I know you talked about with, um, what was his name? Guillermo, Guillermo, but how the universe is expanding and, and, and growing, but our society is kind of declining at the same time. Um, yeah, you you can see biological decline. I looked at the birth weight of different nations and the head size, and for much of the nineteenth and twentieth century. Uh, birth weights and brain sizes were increasing steadily. Uh, 1980, uh, several countries had an actual shrinkage of brain size uh, or uh, a growth in height uh, with no growth in in brain uh, from generation from decade to decade. Uh, so uh, the cultural imposition. Really, is literally shrinking people's brains mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. 
I just read a few days ago, like Generation Z that uh, has a pretty high suicide rate. Uh, it doesn't look good. Yeah. About 75% of them are actually apparently have mental illness. They, they meet the diagnostic criteria as fake as it is for at least one mental illness, um, according to the uh, American Psychiatric Association. This is like the youngest generation that's just entering, not the workforce, but you know they're, they're in high school now. I, I, I think that kind of information uh, has to get through to the people who own and, and run the world that, that their machine is breaking down. Uh, if they really take their ownership seriously, that they want to keep, keep their wealth, uh, they'd better start uh, repairing the mechanism because uh, the components are deteriorating too fast. Are there any grassroots kind of uh, movements that you think have potential for, for really changing things? Like how how likely is it that something from the top is going to change everything, like kind of the elite psychopath type of people? I, I think that is most likely that it will be uh, uh, some disaster that, that forces mm. it. Yeah. So what was the D- Diane Fossier, the degrowth thing? She she thought like we would have to go through a primitive state or go back to a primitive state? I, I, don't, I, I don't think it's possible to get back to any kind of a, a good primitive mm. state. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I think some kind of a big shock uh, is going to have to happen before uh, uh, people, uh, like like people fearing Elizabeth Warren's policy suggestions, uh, and uh, simply ruling out people like that. Uh, uh, the, both both parties are committed to destroying the world. And uh, so, uh, unless people uh, start dismantling, uh, preferably the Democratic Party, uh, since there are still people who remember uh, that there used to be policies uh, connected with the party, uh, uh, dismantling uh, that uh, seems like a a possible uh, route to the future. I wanted to backtrack a little bit on the verbal system. Um, I don't know, Dr. Pete, are you familiar with there's this um, sign slash symptom slash pathology in psychiatry? They call it logo rare. Basically, it's almost like it, it literally means verbal diarrhea. And I, I didn't, I mean, I, I stumbled upon it a, you know, a few weeks ago. And I, when I looked into it, older studies show that it's basically overwhelmingly connected to a number of psychiatric conditions that are known to be driven by excess estrogen and serotonin. Um, and uh, so my question is, do you, do you think that this excessive verbalism, that, that essentially estrogen and serotonin are partly mediating that, and also do you think that if somebody is in a culture that's excessively over-verbalized, eventually it can lead to such pathologies itself? Um, women in general... Uh, produce many more words per minute uh, than men on average. And um, looking at the menstrual phase, 
uh, when estrogen is highest, uh, uh, they they can't stop talking, uh, and uh, I I think that uh, involves a short circuit of the pictorial space space filling thought uh, and uh, directing uh, the energy uh, through these uh, uh, r- repetitive uh, verbal patterns, uh, v- very easy to make, uh, but not. Uh, uh, not uh, conforming uh, to any practical uh, use. Uh, uh, the the uh, thing about the acceptor of action, uh, the pictorial model uh, of the world, is that it's always changing. There's nothing uh, re- repeated. Uh, anything you do, try to do twice. It's always different the second time, but uh, the word consciousness, the, the estrogen-driven, lubricated word, word machine, uh, doesn't get any newness admitted. It's always uh, r- repeating, uh, uh, tending to be uh, cliched and uh, uh, rehashing uh, uh, things that have already been built into the system. In one of your older interviews, you mentioned that you try to spend at least one day a week not not really uttering any words uh, or and or reading, and just painting and and doing non nonverbal activities. So, do you think that that that's? I mean, you must be thinking that it's beneficial to do it if if you if you do, if you're doing it on purpose. So, so you, I, I'm guessing my question is: Do you think that excessive verbalization, um, when it's voluntary, it can basically be detrimental? Uh, uh, not if you keep your energy up. Uh, uh, when I had to teach 12 hours a week, uh, uh, different classes, uh, I, uh, after uh, just two or three weeks, uh, my verbal fluency uh, went up tremendously just because I was exercising that. But uh, I, I never repeated any idea twice uh, uh, through the whole uh, series of lectures. Uh, and uh, if, if you keep your energy up, uh, you can uh, verbalize uh, uh, fairly fluently, but uh, always uh, bending uh, the, the message a little so there's nothing uh, repeated. Understood. People always remark how, like on KMUD, when Andrew said ask you to introduce yourself, you'll change it basically every single time. Are you saying that's kind of the result of keeping the energy up, or are you consciously trying to recreate uh, your 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 history uh, and all the things you've done? Um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I never have have the same history twice. <laughs> Uh, a friend was had had a TV program, uh, and she wanted to uh, do do some uh, hour uh, interviews. And she she was an experienced TV person, and uh, so she would uh, run through a, a trial program, uh, and then say she wanted to do it again. But I would give different answers every time. <laughs> <laughs> she finally gave up and, and realized that it was always going to be different answers. 
but uh, uh, that's just the way I, I see the question. The question never looks the same the second time. Well, Karen told me uh, like probably like five or more years ago, she's like, Danny, something that you have to understand about Ray is when you try to put him in a box, he's going to immediately want to get out. <laughs> and so that was, that made a big, uh, oh, won't even get yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm, I, but I'm saying, is that like a kind of a unique aspect of your personality or do you, you think that's like a, a metabolic thing of trying to always stay in a creative aspect, uh, creative mind, I don't know, mindset or something about, uh, your, your history. I first noticed it when I was, I think, three years old and helping my father with a repetitive task. I realized that every time I repeated the task, I was a new person. And ever since then, I've never been able to have the illusion of doing something twice. And that's then... If, that, if that's the case, then don't you think that schools are really harmful because they, they emphasize this routine at every step of the educational process, both the elementary schools, the high schools, and the universities? They really don't like you being different every single time. Uh, yeah. Uh, there. If, if a person uh, let them be tortured constantly... But you just have to be quiet and let them do their thing. I feel like one of the worst parts about school was sitting down. Like it must, and now learning about restraint stress and things like that, that seems part of the yeah. – I remember just being like uh, – feeling like it was torture sitting down for so long all day. It's awful. Yeah. Are, yeah. My, my only concern is that you once said that faint stupidity becomes real stupidity. So I guess a person just has to be sitting there and hoping that they're not they're not going to be stuck in the educational system long enough to become an idiot like like all the <laughs> all the other people being <laughs> being being turned into slaves mental slaves. Uh, uh, yeah, people who uh, did IQ tests on uh, New York City uh, every year they gave the same students uh, more IQ tests and found that every year their IQ went down. Wow. Have you also seen the studies showing that the earlier a child starts school, basically the dumber they will exit the whole, the whole educational system? I, I hadn't seen that, but that would be the same principle. Yeah. Well, I have two sisters, and I don't think either of them watch this, but the one that didn't go to college I can talk normally with, and then the one that did go to college I, I, we, don't, we don't have very much in common. So I've definitely seen that played out. Ray, do you think the vaccinations, besides the food and the polyunsaturated fats, you see that as a major uh, kind of problem for society? Um, yeah, I, I hadn't, until fairly recently, I hadn't realized that kids are now getting 50 shots by the time they grow up. Uh, but uh, the... the, the um, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, mentioned that uh, until uh, 1980, uh, only two and a half percent, I think, of kids, he said, uh, had allergies. Uh, starting in the 1980s, I, I think he said it was o over half of the kids now have serious allergies. And if you want to create an allergy in an animal, uh, you give it an injection, intramuscular is ideal, to um, uh, include 
some little thing like uh, an egg protein or milk protein or yeah. any of the various proteins that are in the culture media that they make vaccines in. So they they are replicating animal allergy creation every time they give a shot. There's no way to deny it sensibly. I think on one of our conversations, you said the background for vaccines was related to what, like the Rockefeller Foundation and trying to keep workers active. But now, do you think they take on a different meaning nowadays? Um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think the, the money, tremendous money, billions of dollars, uh, 50 billion a, a year, I think it is, profits, uh, 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 mostly profits uh, from the sale of, of just vaccines. And the... I don't know if Dr. Pete has seen the news, but uh, I was shocked to see CNN last week uh, put in a you know headline news that basically said CDC is warning. It's not a question of of if but when coronavirus will create a massive epidemic in the United <laughs> States. And I thought to myself, why why would a health agency issue such a statement? And and then why would a major news media publish it? Isn't that like the exact opposite? What a government should be doing, like scaring scaring all of its citizens and not really providing any answers. They're just saying it will be bad and be very afraid. Um, uh, yeah, the, the CDC, uh, on, uh, I don't know what the average is, but over the last, uh, uh, I, I think, at least 15 years, the, the they say that the annual deaths produced by influenza, uh, and I think they're all, uh, coronavirus influenza that's that's just the standard uh, category that produces influenza uh, they have been saying i think it ranges from 9 million deaths per year in the united states to a high of 57 million deaths from influenza holy smokes per year that's worldwide and, and now they uh, expect us to get excited when a dozen <laughs> people die. <laughs> well, what, like, well, so I was, I, I was trying to think of all the like swine flu, SARS, bird flu, Zika virus. Like, is the difference between Ebola. Uh, Ebola, all these yeah. things? Like, it seems like I was talking about with Georgie before I got on the phone with you, Ray, and I said that my like Twitter application on my phone. So when I do turn on my phone, the the application of Twitter, there is a new huge like bar on the screen just updating me on coronavirus but i've never like the, like the application has changed to give me updates that i've never asked for on coronavirus and it, it just seems like the marketing campaign is palpable very very strong um, uh, yeah and the world health organization is sharing in the corruption conflicts of interest uh, uh, so you, you can't trust any of the big organizations because uh, they uh, manage to uh, uh, profit in, in some way from the huge amount of wealth that's being directed uh, through the, the vaccines. I have a question about viral, resili uh, viral resilience in general. Uh, I was reading some older studies and they were all showing that um, basically, the more hydrophilic the cell is, the greater its susceptibility to a viral infection. And then I thought, okay, so doesn't that suggest that the 
presence of polyunsaturated fats in the blood would increase susceptibility to the virus. And unsurprisingly or surprisingly, there are quite a few studies published before the 1950s that made that exact same claim, that if you have high levels of unsaturated fats in the blood, they will increase the the affinity of the cell for water and also for these viral particles. But if the level of free fatty acids in the blood are low, then cells were extremely resilient to even lethal uh, viruses like the rabies. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, that uh, that whole subject, uh, polyunsaturated fats, uh, it, it's uh, worse than any organized crime campaign. Uh, estrogen and polyunsaturated fats are uh, gigantic criminal businesses. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, omega minus three fats are especially powerful in immune suppression, uh, but they market that as being anti-inflammatory. What was right, so my question was, like, basically, wouldn't something as simple as taking some aspirin and niacinamide essentially greatly reduce the risk of catching any viral infection? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, and aspirin happens to be... Uh, an antiviral agent in itself, antibacterial and antiviral. And there was a a study, uh, I think around Washington, D.C., that uh, tested it on AIDS patients, uh, just big doses of of aspirin. And it was working, but uh, no one was interested in it. I I actually met, I live in D.C., and I met uh, one of the the people who were involved in the study, and he he refuses to talk about it. Uh, basically, the, the, the statement was the, the question is too political. And I said, well, I've seen the study. You guys claimed that it was terminated because uh, there was a, um, there a rise in the levels of the liver enzymes in the aspirin group. Uh, he said, yeah, that was the official story, but that's not, that's not why it was stopped. And when I asked why it was stopped, he said it's way above my pay grade. <laughs> I mean, meaning mine, not his. Ray, one of the papers you had uh, cited in one of your articles, the Prasad paper, it's um, and they say it is perhaps surprising that essential lipids that are supposed to be so good for health are so potent at killing cells. <laughs> so, yeah, just supporting what you're talking about. And then you on your HIV article were uh, referencing papers that uh, those people had high levels of PUFA in their blood. And it's something I had never even heard of anywhere else. Uh, yeah, uh, immunodeficiency is a, a big thing uh, apart from any virus. Uh, uh, sepsis uh, has been growing uh, along with uh, other uh, degenerative diseases, but uh, young people never used to get sepsis practically. Uh, but now uh, sepsis is, is affecting younger and younger people in bigger numbers. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's uh, l- largely the uh, uh, stress cumulative effects on PUFA. Well, well, something I, I, that's popular among my group of friends is the idea of like herd immunity. Do you want to speak about that? Like what? I think that's why people are scared and kind of my freedom loving friends uh, the the best of them would still want other people to like kind of forcefully get vaccinations because they fear for their own safety. And so do you want to maybe speak if you know where that idea stemmed from and then 
how it fits into your or how it does not fit into your biological and physiological picture? Uh, it sounds very much like a, a Nazi <laughs> uh, a program. <laughs> It, it doesn't have any convincing weight for me. It just makes me fear the people that say we're a herd that has to be treated one way or another. Have you seen any of that movie, Vaxxed? I- they talk about the military treat vaccinating people and creating Gulf War syndrome with with the uh, anthrax vaccine. Well, I, I hadn't read that specifically, but the uh, Diana Dutton wrote a book called Worse Than Disease, where she like kind of details the swine flu, and it was kind of similar to what you said earlier about coronavirus. Like the 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 uh, the problem didn't kill very many people, but the vaccine caused tons of problems. Uh, yeah, one guy uh, was. Uh, routed out of bed uh, to go on a forced march and collapsed uh, uh, while marching and uh, died shortly after. And he was diagnosed as having swine flu. He was the only uh, death uh, acknowledged by the head of the uh, CDC uh, from swine flu. But uh, I, I, I forget the, the exact number, but uh, there were thousands of paralytic uh, reactions, and I, I think it was around 300 deaths from the vaccine, so hundreds of times worse than the disease. You, you say in your newsletter, if a vaccine hasn't produced swelling, fever, anaphylaxis, shock, paralysis, or death within two months, it is safe. Or the public health view, it seems to be that if a vaccine hasn't produced swelling. Uh, which is just uh, yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to mention something about HIV. Um, Doctor Pete may have seen that study. I think it came out around 2014. Of course, didn't hit mainstream media, but it showed that uh, at least the authors claimed that you cannot develop AIDS if you if you're HIV positive. So you cannot develop AIDS unless there's high levels of endotoxin in your blood. And then there was a subsequent study, in, I think in 2018, which showed that the single uh, most reliable predictor of death of all-cause mortality in HIV-positive people was this level of this protein called soluble CD14. It's, it's abbreviated SCD14, and that is the, as the most reliable biomarker of endotoxin levels in the blood. And for some reason, I never see virologists talk about the role of endotoxin in in viral disease and multi-organ failure and in septic shock, well, in reality, it seems like all of these things are directly caused by endotoxin. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to think that even cancer is largely an endotoxin problem. Chronic year after year, uh, bad food irritating the intestine, causing uh, increased histamine and serotonin and estrogen, but a constant uh, stream of endotoxin flowing through the system, uh, shaking up uh, chromosomes, uh, creating inflammation, uh, fatiguing uh, the uh, repair systems. Finally, when the repair systems are, are down to, to a certain extent, 
the, the cancers that are constantly popping up uh, stop being removed. Uh, and uh, so you, uh, if you don't die of acute sepsis, uh, then uh, heart disease and cancer, I think, are uh, the result of, of chronic exposure to, to the endotoxin. So would you say the specific organ or or tissue where the cancer appears, the lo- the, the uh, apparently localized nature, even though we know it's a systemic problem, the apparently localized nature is simply because that particular organ or tissue was the most energetically compromised. That's why it took a yeah. hold there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, when I've mentioned the idea of systemic disease to uh, cancer doctors or patients, uh, they really... Uh, have a hard time, just can't uh, grasp. They've been so indoctrinated with the idea that uh, it's a clone that develops one single mutant cell uh, develops into the clone. And so it's by definition, the most localized thing conceivable. It's platonically localized, but way back uh, 80, 80 or 90 years, people have been seeing precancerous uh, uh, gradations uh, surrounding uh, any tumor uh, if you if you look at the uh, all of the signs uh, stem cell uh, uh, signals uh, all of the inflammatory uh, cytokines uh, uh, disturbed uh, chromosome balance all of those things are uh, increased in a gradient uh, the field concept of cancer uh, goes way back uh, 200 years almost, uh, but it it just hasn't been acceptable because of this uh, uh, Platonistic uh, genetic determinism, clonal uh, uh, descent of each tumor. Have you seen the study that came out in 2015? Um, basically, I mean, made huge waves across the oncology community, if there is such a thing, and basically said for over a hundred years we've been wrong. Uh, we've calling it we've been calling it the Warburg effect, but now it seems that it's the actual the effect is the cause as well. In other words, metabolic disturbances and specifically lactic acid precede the genomic abnormalities that are seen in cancer cells and actually the cause of them, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. lactic acid creates a reduced state, uh, shifts the balance towards increased sulfhydryl, uh, NADH uh, ratio to NAD, uh, and all of the... uh, electronic and energetic properties of cancer are are initiated just by putting a lot of uh, lactic acid into the system. Yeah, I I was just, you know, I saw, I mean, it was posted on one of the biggest social media sites and you could see doctors chiming in and, you know, some of them being panicky and saying, oh my God, if this is true, it means, you know, in my practice as an oncologist, I've been killing people. And others are saying, well, it's it's too early. Let's see genetics. We haven't heard the last of genetics yet. Let's give genetics a chance. Maybe maybe we'll find a way to treat it genetically. But overall, the mood was, um, well, it was it was pessimistic for the oncologist. But, uh, you know, the general public that was reading this thread and responding seemed to be pretty ecstatic because people immediately caught on the fact that, you know, if cancer is metabolic and, you know, it's this continuous field, 
um, then it can probably be reversed. You don't need to subject yourself to this torture that your oncologist is giving you and la- likely killing you. There are other there are other ways. And the doctors were heavily arguing against it in that same thread, saying, no, people, if you choose the metabolic route, you'll be killing yourselves. You're signing your death warrants. You should stay with the traditional therapist because un- until we know more. Did you ever read Max Gerson's book? I think it was called 59 Cases. Uh, he... Uh, uh, coffee enemas uh, were one of his staples. Uh, he, he generally gave people thyroid uh, and, and uh, tried to get their uh, met- metabolism uh, t- towards oxid- oxidative uh, uh, energy production. But uh, cleaning the intestine uh, was probably his single uh, uh, most effective thing even if he sometimes had an old person who was very debilitated he would sometimes give them a coffee enema every hour around the clock get them out of bed to wash their intestine again and he actually cured numerous advanced cases of of cancer uh, documented uh, w- with photographs. Uh, I, I think uh, chronically uh, keeping the, the endotoxin down uh, gives the, the recuperative system uh, a great chance. So that would explain largely why, um, you know, recent studies with the tetracycline antibiotics, especially doxycycline, um, are, are reporting such, such uh, you know, uh, remarkable effects. Uh, yeah, uh, in 1965, was the first time uh, some doctor sent me uh, an argument that he, he was curing uh, cancer with antibiotics. Uh, and uh, I didn't, uh, at that time, think of it in terms of uh, cutting out the endotoxin, but uh, people have been doing it uh, repeatedly over several decades. Okay. I have to send you a, there's a press release from Harvard University, I think it's from 19, early 90s, it's about a lady that uh, ran a cancer lab there, and the news article was, uh, it was a popular press article, and it said, uh, Dr. I think Johnson is capable of curing mice of lethal leukemia every time she wants to, uh, and how does she do that? By giving them tetracycline, and then the, and then immediately the question is, why can't this be done in people? And she said, because it's not FDA approved. <laughs> And I thought to myself, what a what a stupid excuse! Like, what is the antibiotic going to give uh, do to these terminally ill people? What kill them? I mean, they're dying anyways. Like, why not try something that's already approved for usage in people and and it's known to be relatively safe? Why do we have to wait on the bureaucracy to to give us approval to live? Why can't this be I, tried I, by 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 good good natured doctors? I've known doctors who were. Uh, declared uh, imminently dying in hospital and they wanted to try something on on their own uh, the uh, supervising doctors took their stuff away from them wouldn't let them experiment even though they were said to have only 48 hours left to live they couldn't experiment on themselves yeah, I remember there was a, a neurologist who got uh, a neuroglioblastoma and he started injecting himself with some kind of a virus or bacteria to give himself fever because he read that 
fevers sometimes, you know, cu- uh, cure the cancer. And he was immediately declared mentally unfit. <laughs> and they basically committed this doctor who used to work in this hospital. They locked him up in his own hospital and, and you know, let him, he died like a, a few weeks later. Hmm. Uh, there have been a couple of, of studies in which uh, in people, they accidentally noticed uh, that women who were given uh, an antibiotic course, uh, uh, among other things, uh, they uh, recovered from their headaches, uh, but uh, they did blood tests and found that uh, before the antibiotic, they had high estrogen and cortisol and low progesterone. And after the uh, course of antibiotics, their progesterone went up and both cortisol and the estrogen went down, uh, both of which would favor uh, re- recovery from cancer. Uh, the the uh, cortisol is uh, weakening your I- immune uh, processes, for example, and the estrogen is stimulating uh, uh, cell growth. Uh, in in uh, rats, same thing uh, was observed. Uh, a course of antibiotics lowers cortisol and estrogen and increases progesterone. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, the, the coffee enema or, or the antibiotic or a high fiber diet, uh, all of those things are uh, actually uh, remedying uh, your, your hormone situation. Do you, do, did you know that cortisol is, is given to pretty much any cancer patients as kind of like a standard treatment? Along with morphine, <laughs> and morphine, yes, <laughs> and more morphine increases uh, histamine release. Histamine is a powerful uh, tumor promoter, so uh, uh, they they usually uh, adjust the dose so that they're dead before <laughs> they uh, notice that the tumor has grown faster. <laughs> Yeah, it just never ceased to amaze me. They, they, the explanation of the doctors, because I used to work in a medical field, was that well, the per, the the patient has you know infl- inflammation and, and edema, and we need to reduce it with a cortisol. And I thought, aren't there other safer anti-inflammatory uh, you know methods? Because even as, as ignorant as some doctors are, even some of them do know that cortisol does not seem to be helping the tumor patients. They're almost using it as, because by definition, that's the powerful anti-inflammatory they have on file, and they have to use it. Mm-hmm. Ray, would you put uh, Paul Ehrlich in the pantheon of people that have ruined science? <laughs> so Weissman, Paul Ehrlich, uh, and Ehrlich was the same guy that did the estrogen receptor stuff. Is that right? Uh, he he popularized the whole idea of lock and key uh, uh, receptor specificity. Uh, 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 that whole uh, receptor idea uh, is perfect for selling uh, uh, chemicals. Uh, every chemical can have a receptor, and and so it's uh, perfect for the the chemical industry. Uh, and uh, the holistic, on, ongoing uh, 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 whirlwind picture of, of the organism, uh, where, uh, for example, uh, a large dose of a chemical can have an opposite effect of a small dose. Uh, 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 those contradictory uh, anti-receptor pictures 
are, are no good for the chemical industry. I have a question about the whole receptor thing. Um, I'm sure you've probably noticed this yourself, but uh, I looked at all of the hormones that that are currently known. Um, and then I also looked at the receptor and the receptor structure. There is a significant overlap in terms of the amino acid sequence and the structure of the various receptors. So even though, let's say, uh, you know, a pharmaceutical company may claim that they've developed this extremely selective, say, estrogen agonist, if you go back and look at the other studies done by other groups, you'll see invariably that this that this substance that they claim is extremely selective is invariably acting on other receptors as well. So my question is, is it even possible to develop a, a, a truly selective receptor um, compound given that the various receptors have so much overlap? Uh, no, I don't think so. The, the whole idea of receptors is derives from Ehrlich and I think it's just uh, right down to its foundation, uh, corrupt. Uh, St. Georgie uh, reviewed uh, in one of his books uh, uh, ideas that uh, Pavlov uh, was uh, familiar with around the turn of the century, uh, the idea that the dose uh, determines the effect, uh, uh, like a, a small amount of, of Caffeine is sedative, a large amount is stimulating, an even larger amount is narcotic. And, and uh, uh, the, the sedatives, uh, the, the dose uh, of a sedative, a small dose will be a stimulant, a larger dose, a sedative. Uh, and uh, the, the, the typical curve uh, has been tested on uh, hundreds of different substances uh, and it's consistently uh, contradicts the idea of a specific receptor doing a specific thing. Uh, the only way you can imagine uh, that uh, three-phase curve working is if you think, think of the cell as substance uh, or uh, uh, characteristic uh, uh, quality uh, qualities and, and substance. Uh, you have to think uh, uh, as a, uh, something which can move uh, from one phase to another, uh, 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 potentially a, a series of phase, uh, uh, each phase uh, having a, a characteristic uh, behavior. Uh, so the differentiation uh, occurs in the cytoplasm as a whole, and uh, that uh, state of the cytoplasm evokes <clears throat> uh, the expression uh, or, or stabilizes the expression uh, of the genes <clears throat> uh, that are appropriate for the, for that state. But uh, uh, by by thinking in terms of physical states, uh, uh, you, you can uh, visualize uh, the quantity as reaching a threshold. Uh, a cooperative phase transition happens when uh, many things uh, work in the same direction. So basically, the whole idea of of using one substance that will work in only one particular way it's it's hopeless. I mean, basically, the organism doesn't work I, like that. 
uh, yeah, you, you can create the illusion that it does by setting conditions just exactly right, and then you can get the apparent specific interaction and reaction, but it's a, a purely artificial setup. Have you seen the uh, recent news about the resurgence of estrogen, of hormone replacement therapy with estrogen in uh, menopausal women? They're trying to kind of uh, put down the whole, all the findings of the Women Health Initiative study and try to reintroduce estrogen as therapy. <laughs> yeah, in 1973 or four, I saw a resurgence, and about every five or ten years, the actual science makes a little headway. The big headway was the Women's Health Initiative, and within five years, they were the people at Stanford were instrumental in. Uh, explaining uh, why estrogen didn't, didn't really cause uh, uh, cancer, strokes, heart attacks, uh, and so on. Uh, and their their favorite explanation is it's really uh, progesterone. Uh, and uh, the, originally, uh, estrogen was recognized as doing certain things to the organism, and uh, they identified the estrogen receptor as a major way that it does that, even though uh, uh, hypoxia in the absence of estrogen will cause the, the receptor to behave the same. Uh, it's, uh, uh, estrogen creates hypoxia and activates the estrogen. Uh, the, the hypoxia alone will do it if something else cre creates it. But uh, when uh, they uh, needed uh, to to explain away that estrogen does everything that it does, uh, they discovered the estrogen receptor beta, and it turns out that almost everything that estrogen doesn't do, uh, the beta does. It, it stops uh, growth, uh, does stops all of the characteristic uh, estrogen behaviors, and uh, pretty much parallels uh, the actions of progesterone. And uh, progesterone now is divided into an A and B receptor. Uh, right. And the, the, the A receptor is activated by estrogen and inactivates uh, the progesterone B. But uh, uh, they're uh, just thinking uh, wildly of ways that they can say that uh, progesterone is responsible for all of the bad stuff that has been, been blamed on estrogen. I emailed one of the authors of one of the big papers that's now calling for reintroduction of estrogen as therapy for women, and I said, how can we ignore all this science? I mean, that's that's pretty much indisputable that estrogen is carcinogenic. There is actually a page hosted on the website of the National Institutes of Health which officially de defines and, and declares uh, estrogen as a carcinogen and a mutagen. And I said, well, you know, your own organization, I think uh, basically that person work, either used to work or works at NIH, I said, your own organization says that estrogen is this dangerous chemical. And he said, well, estrogen has non-genomic effects that are actually beneficial. And if we give it at lower dosages, it acts as a powerful antioxidant 
that will remove the need for people to take vitamin E and C and it will give them all the benefit for heart protection without actually having the carcinogenic effects. Ray? Are you are you still no. there, Georgie? Oh no, did we lose? Did we <laughs> lose Ray? Uh, maybe we did. Okay. Um, seems like he's there. Maybe let me hang up and call him back. Okay, Ray, you're not there, right? Okay, gonna hang up, call him back. These things happen. I was afraid you were frozen too. <laughs> and I was like, gotta really. It's because yeah. I never move and never I was going to be like, oh man, I have a, <laughs> like I have a serious hope. problem. If everything just froze, that would be really uh, not good. I think I finally bore, bore Ray to death and he's like, I'm done with this. <laughs> you guys keep talking. Okay, let me call him back. Unable to add participant uh, is unavailable. Is it busy? Does that mean it's giving busy him or something? I wonder if he's trying to like call back the number, which would I think be impossible. I don't know. We'll see. Okay, everybody, thank you so much. I think we have like 250 people. You know, this is obviously the most people we've ever had on here, so that is heartwarming. Um, I never wanted to get Ray on until I felt real comfortable with the the mechanics of this the live stream stuff, and so I feel more comfortable with it, and so I'm happy to. To have this happen, and it's everything I ever dreamed of. So, uh, thanks, Georgie, and th massive thanks to Ray. Let me call him back again. I wonder if there's a time limit on Ray, you're back. Okay. We lost you for a second. <laughs> I didn't hear when it went I, I don't know either, Georgie. Do you remember? When, when when we lost Ray, it was kind of like a strange. I thought my whole computer froze, but it, it didn't. Um, no, I was talking about the uh, like the reintroduction of estrogen. I was talking to one of the one of the authors of a big study that came out this year, and I emailed him and I said, well, "How can you argue that estrogen is good, considering that your own organization, I think that person works for the NIH, has a webpage which says estrogen is a carcinogen and a mutagen? So why would you argue that estrogen is?" It needs to be reintroduced and given to women. And he said, estrogen has non-genomic effects that don't involve the estrogen receptor and acts as a powerful antioxidant. So if we give it to women in the right dosage, they will uh, obviate the need for them to take massive doses of vitamin E and C, and it will provide them with this benefit of cardiovascular protection and everything that these great antioxidants do. So I said, so... So how can you prevent estrogen from activating the, the you know these receptors that you know are causing cancer? Um, and he basically said it's the dosage that dosage that makes the poison. So they're thinking that lower dose estrogen, it's going to be beneficial. But I remember you said in several newsletters said that a continuous uninterrupted exposure to a low dose of estrogen is probably more harmful than getting estrogen spikes like every you know every few days or every few weeks. Uh, yeah, that was Alexander Lipschutz uh, through from about 1938 th through the 1940s. Uh, did many animal experiments showing that e even very small doses of estrogen 
unless they were interrupted with progesterone, uh, were carcinogenic not just to the uterus and breast, uh, but to the lungs, kidneys, brain, uh, every organ uh, would eventually uh, develop an estrogen-induced cancer. Well, if estrogen is, I mean, if cancer is a state of chronic reductive stress and estrogen is a powerful reductant itself, doesn't that almost guarantee that estrogen will at the very least contribute to an already established cancer? Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know of any case where it doesn't. Okay. Uh, to change gears a little bit, Ray, I think I feel like you're getting more popular on YouTube and Twitter and things, and people say all sorts of things about why you do what you do. And so may, maybe we could just take a second to say, like, why do you do what you do? Like, may, just from, you, you know, your own words, because so many people just uh, just basically make up things. And so I was just curious about your position on that. Um, as part of my under, understanding uh, what, what I'm doing here in the world, uh, uh, checking... Uh, ideas and uh, look, looking for uh, new new perspectives, uh, checking what people believe and uh, uh, trying to avoid uh, the, the bad uh, interpretations that lead to bad bad actions and results. Uh, it's all just part of the same uh, process of uh, uh, looking looking for something to do. And, and and maybe just an elevator pitch of your general hypothesis, like the um, what you say on your the front of your webpage, the idea that energy and structure are interdependent at every level. Like uh, I, I I made a video about this not uh, fairly recently, but it's like because the the nutrition world is so stuck on different diets. Like what what is your you, Obviously, this whole conversation is about how complex everything is, but your work gets to uh, gets reduced down to kind of a caricature of like you drink two gallons of milk and two gallons of orange juice and a, a bag of sugar, and then you're doing your repeat diet. So, what what is your perspective of what maintains health, and then what is the differentiator into the state of sickness? Uh, there are two uh, simple choices. One that. Uh, the uh, genes uh, have uh, been laid out, uh, uh, have uh, uh, created a blueprint for creating uh, the structures, and all the uh, energy has to do is uh, help to roll those out, and once they're in place, uh, just to keep them running, uh, like uh, that orientation leads to the idea that, uh, that the less you live, uh, the longer you, you will live. Uh, the idea that uh, you're going to uh, burn, b burn up your, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the whole apparatus uh, will uh, wear out uh, the, the faster you use it. Uh, that all comes from the reductionist idea uh, of a machine laid out in gen genetic blueprints. Uh, it, it's uh, a machine powered uh, by Rube Goldberg uh, 
system, which is 20th century science. And the other picture is the developmental picture that energy flowing from the sun through the atmosphere is creating structures that the flow of energy itself generates structures and the faster the energy flows, the more complex the structure becomes and the more energy is saved in the system in the form of complexity of structure. And the efficiency increases, but the waste is is part of what is is powering it. You don't uh, have to um, uh, think in terms of uh, the efficiency of the system because the, the energy flowing through the system, even though uh, the oxidative apparatus is getting more efficient, you're building a bigger system faster uh, than the uh, uh, complexity uh, uh, and efficiency accumulates uh, so it's it's the, the uh, speed with which you can waste the energy uh, while responding to it, uh, building your complexity uh, that is holding up the whole structure. Uh, and uh, uh, it's simply a picture uh, of an ecosystem uh, uh, responding physically to energy. It, it doesn't violate any of the known physical laws, it, it uses them in uh, more intelligent ways than the Rube Goldberg uh, science of membranes, uh, genes, and so on. And then you feel like you're following it, like this is not some idea that you cooked up on your own, like you, you feel like you're following in a tradition of people like St. Georgie, like Otto Warburg, like uh, uh, Koch, and, and others? Uh, yeah. Uh, even even earlier, uh, J.C. Bose was one of my first uh, uh, inspirations. Um, I have a question. Do you think that uh, this openness to new ideas that these people had, um, it was sort of uh, enabled by their, by their relatively faster metabolism? Um, and or do you think it was more or less childhood experiences that set them to be that way, to be open to new opportunities and to actually actively seek them out? I, I think a, a good intrauterine environment is a tremendous part of it. Uh, you can, uh, like Katharina Dalton's patients, uh, the, the older kids of her patients uh, had 95 average IQ uh, and uh, just by uh, treating the mothers with progesterone, uh, her patients' kids uh, had something like a 135 average IQ. S same mother, but um, better uh, uh, nourishment in utero. Uh, and uh, uh, that kind of a, a head start uh, gives you a lot of uh, energy for uh, absorbing shocks uh, from the oppressive environment. Okay. A question related to that, um, to expand a little bit on that, is, as I'm sure you're familiar, sick people and sick animals tend to 
sort of retreat, avoid the real world and really limit their spectrum of activity. Some, some of them even stop eating and basically just they just want to keep to themselves and be left alone. But considering the fact that novelty and new experiences and being stimulated in the proper way is so very therapeutic, do you think these sick organisms are making a pathological choice that's not good for them based on their already poor health? Or do you think it's actually a, a choice that, that at least in the short term, it's, it's good for them? Basically, they don't have the energy to meet the, the demands of the world, so they're retreating and hoping that they'll recover and then, and then they'll come back. Uh, uh, yeah, the, 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 usually there's something specific that has happened. Uh, they've eaten something or uh, caught an infection, got poisoned, uh, and retreat uh, and uh, uh, let the body... Uh, repair itself. It's uh, that, that Paracelsus uh, was one of the first people to put it into practice, where uh, he put his uh, uh, pharmacological preparation uh, on the sword that caused the wound and spared the patient the medication uh, and. Uh, <laughs> discovered that patients recovered much better uh, without the medication. Uh, any time there's been an opportunity to compare um, medicated people uh, with unmedicated, uh, the, the ones without medicine are much healthier. So if, like animals, we could just uh, take, take a week or two uh, to uh, re- retreat and uh, maybe... Uh, have have a, a milkshake now and then. Uh, would, people would be much uh, healthier, more likely to survive to old age. So, so I guess initially would be would be beneficial to retreat because you want to recover energetic resources. But do you do you think that over time, if this becomes a chronic sort of isolation, self-imposed, that over time actually becomes pathological? It starts to hurt health because you've retreated so much from the world. Uh, yeah, the, there are people who do that, uh, but uh, uh, the, the, they they need new opportunities as what, uh, and the, the culture isn't rushing to give them healthy, <laughs> new, interesting opportunities. In many in many cases, actually, they retreated because their doctor told them to. Um, it's you know they say stay in your room and until I call you and 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 until it's okay to get out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to bring it back to politics a little bit, like Ray, you think there's a, a a way forward with the kind of the system that we have at the moment? Like you you see glimmers of hope. Like I I remember when you talk we were talking to Gavin for that interview uh, on politics when Trump had just been elected. Like uh, it seemed like okay, this is different, but then over time he s- seems to have been absorbed into this the same kind of stereotypical problems of endless war and things like that do you but you but you do see a glimmer of hope in that whole system uh, do you know who end culture is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 i think of her as, as the personification of uh, goonie reactionary <laughs> philosophy uh, but <laughs> we, weirdly uh, she has made uh, some of the uh, most insightful comments about what's going on now. That, uh, uh, for example, comparing uh, Bernie and uh, uh, Trump, uh, she pointed out that the very things that he campaigned on, but 
didn't exactly fulfill uh, keeping us out of war, um, uh, taxing uh, the uh, untaxed corporations like Amazon and, and the banks, uh, and stopping immigration. Uh, Bernie has uh, identical policies to what people were perceiving uh, as Trump's campaign promises. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, she says that uh, he is Trump's uh, real threat. And the, and the polls, almost all of the polls are showing uh, Bernie beating Trump by uh, several points, percentage points. Uh, and uh, uh, most most people uh, in in the public uh, media, especially the Democrats, don't want to talk about uh, that possibility that uh, uh, the, the same people who saw possibility in Trump uh, avoiding war uh, and uh, taxing the giant corporations, uh, that's what they see in Bernie. Uh, and uh, so uh, if, if he could run against Trump, then uh, uh, other um, re realistic things then would be at issue. Maybe Ann Coulter is espousing some of those. Uh, you introduced me to the term, but paleoconservative a little bit. To, uh, some of those ideas. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't uh, know what re really went through Ann Coulter's mind, uh, but it was. Uh, uh, more perceptive than I've seen any of the Democrat uh, liberals doing. Um, uh, yeah, the the paleo conservatives uh, are very consistent on avoiding war, but um, uh, some of their policies are are really dopey. Well, well, not to get too deep into a rabbit hole on this, but things like immigration and thing. I, I know there was uh, I forget the author, but it was like a a book uh, called Weapons of Mass Migration. And so I, this is not a, a topic I spend lots of t time thinking about, but like uh, those types of things to kind of influence the culture. And I know the paleoconservatives are against that. But again, I'm like a reading Bucky Fuller and him saying that there shouldn't be borders and things like that. Like I, I agree with that type of view, but I'm also, I don't know, I'm like torn between these uh, different points of view of, of migration and things. And also being in a living in different countries, it's not very easy to stay anywhere else aside from Mexico or America. Uh, yeah. Uh, Bucky Fuller would uh, say that the corollary is that you stop uh, creating horror uh, experiences at home, like uh, imposing uh, a fascist on Honduras uh, where, or, uh, the, the elected president was uh, improving. Or he, he just wanted to raise the uh, minimum wage and um, barely uh, improve things, but definitely improving. Uh, he was kicked out. Uh, Hillary uh, Clinton uh, oversaw uh, putting a, a fascist in, uh, and uh, all of the uh, progressive uh, labor people trying to uh, Get, get a, a minimum wage. Uh, they're being murdered. Uh, uh, environmentalists are, are being murdered. Uh, and uh, so obviously it's uh, an, an improvement for them to uh, try to get into the United States. But uh, 
simply stopping uh, the uh, oppression of third world countries uh, would stop the immigration, improve conditions. Uh, Hondurans would rather live in Honduras uh, with, with a better standard of living uh, than uh, going to the U.S. and, and looking for work. Uh, Erdogan in Turkey uh, is uh, following the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, allying with Al-Qaeda uh, and uh, uh, in, ending up uh, creating more refugees and trying to send them to Europe to, to force Europe to send an army in to uh, give Syria uh, to him. Uh, if you uh, simply uh, stop uh, supporting the, the the murder and the oppression in places like, like Turkey and Honduras, uh, you would stop the immigration problem. And that's from the imperialist U.S. war machine. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, I think it's more than the U.S. involved here. I think there, there are a number of imperialists in, in this world that are acting in concert with the United States and, and often actually spearheading the war in certain places of the world, even more more than the United States. Um, I mean, Russia and, and, and Turkey, just as you said, Dr. Pete, and France and Germany, they all have competing interests in in the Middle East, um, Israel, of course, Saudi Arabia, Iran, right? So, so you know, the United States gets a lot of the blame be, being the largest empire of them all, but I think there are plenty of other countries that are at least as evil, and in this specific case, probably even more so than, well, than, just, than the United just States. A number of, just a number of soldiers maintained in other people's countries. The, the U.S. is by far the leader. Yeah. So I have a question for you. I mean, I, given everything that we've talked about so far and politicians getting elected and then getting mired in the very swamp that they pledged to drain, um, and I've read history, maybe not not a, definitely not as extensively as you, but I don't know of a single case of an empire of an empire that got reformed. Do you think that this empire or any empire can be reformed? All I saw in history was empires either expanding, reaching their peak, and then either sort of like gently fading into oblivion or collapsing almost overnight. I never saw a case of, of, of a peaceful, semi-peaceful, or, or even even um, constructive reform of an empire. I, I, yeah, I, I think Trump theoretically uh, had that in mind, a controlled collapse of the empire, uh, withdrawing the army uh, more or less quickly. Uh, but... Uh, uh, the the imperialists in the military, for example, don't want uh, to lose their power. But uh, if uh, Bernie uh, could actually uh, run against him, uh, I think between them uh, they would uh, possibly recruit uh, more supporters for um, bringing the empire down fairly quickly. And what what would that entail in your view, bringing down the empire? Would it be simply end of the world wars that the that that the military machine has started, or would it mean of a more do you, do you mean a, a more radical social change at home? Um, if, if you um, freed up uh, the um, Pentagon budget, for example, ninety uh, percent of it 
putting the U.S. on a scale with uh, other uh, big countries. Uh, uh, that amount of money uh, re removed from military destruction could uh, uh, far far more than uh, finance any any kind of uh, Bernie Sanders uh, programs, uh, free free college. Uh, health health care for everyone, uh, good good education, uh, health care. Okay, I just don't see the powers that be relinquishing that 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 war machine because that is the source of their power, um, and whoever gets elected, in my view, will 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 be either undermined politically um, or um, maybe even worse. Maybe you know. Um, this country has already seen an assassination of a president, and apparently, if you believe other historical sources, attempted assassinations on other presidents that weren't playing ball. Um, yeah, so I, I read the um, uh, uh, JFK, the unspeakable. Uh, that gives a, a very uh, close view of of how uh, Kennedy was uh, backing off from the empire, and uh, they didn't. One them to back off. Uh, I, I think even the uh, Trump realizes uh, that same uh, mechanism uh, being in action, uh, and uh, he he has his his own uh, uh, secret service, for example. Uh, the secret service uh, pretty obviously was involved in killing Kennedy, uh, and Trump uh, knew enough to. Uh, <laughs> have his own private security rather than the secret service was his like so i didn't know that much about trump like leading up to the election but his bailout from the uh, from some rothschild family member and then his close association with sheldon adelson were there clues that he was not going to follow through with what he was talking about because he seems to be a totally co-opted and, and again like you said he's not doing the things that he originally promised to do Um, uh, yeah, he, he has uh, repeatedly uh, uh, tried to sign the agreement with the Taliban. Uh, Pompeo keeps sabotaging it, but uh, Trump keeps going back and uh, trying to keep the withdrawal on schedule. Uh, so I, I think more than anyone else in the government, he is uh, making efforts to, to shut down the, the war system. And then, do you, how does somebody like Pompeo rise to power? The guy is a total, like, total nut. <laughs> like, I just listened to some of his, like, speaking, and I, it's just, I know it's nothing new, but it's just, it's, like, shocking to even hear him talk about his kind of machinations and, and things about what's going to happen in the future. The, the Armageddon crowd <laughs> was in Reagan's government, too. Uh, the interior minister uh, said uh, the, the end is near let's mine it all <laughs> get it <laughs> get it before the end well that really seems to be the premise they're all operating on is that the end is coming soon and it, nothing matters you know so that's why maybe that validates endless war and, and things like that so uh, that that's literally true of a lot of those people like Pompeo yeah, I wanted to tie in health and the collapse of the empire. I mean, um, 
barring any kind of a unpredictable collapse that the sort of the powers that be inflict on themselves, um, you know, if we want uh, the reform, so to speak, or the, or the control collapse to come from from the people, um, many of them, if not most, um, are in such a compromised state of health that they actually fear and often actively oppose change. At least that's that's my personal impression. Uh, Don't you think yeah. this needs to be improved before some radical social change can actually take hold? Uh, yes, uh, that's why why I emphasize biology and and health uh, thinking to get people to realize that they're dying uh, on this path and that they have to change something radically uh, to simply save their own health. Uh, they've got to uh, uh, change the system, which is pumping. It isn't carbon dioxide. It's uh, a thousand different toxins being pumped into the atmosphere uh, and food supply that, that uh, is killing people, uh, vaccines uh, and uh, fake foods. Uh, uh, I think the, the, the movie Vaxxed and the various movements against genetically modified food and so on, that, that's a wedge that people can start to see their own survival and their children depending on bringing this industrial system uh, to, to some kind of, of uh, safe conclusion. Okay. Um, in one of your one of the, your first interviews with Danny, both of you were talking about panic and organizing the panic. That actually um, might might have been Karen. Was, but go ahead. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, but I think Dr. Peter opined on that as well. Um, so let's say you you know the average person on the street, they you 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 give them all this information. They say, okay, I I see it in my own life. I believe you. I do understand that that the system is killing me, and I'm shaking with anxiety because I don't know what to do. What would be your response to a person like that? Where where do they start? Getting organized, and that's exactly where the the power system exists. Is any impulse towards organization gets interrupted? Uh, all kinds of interruptions, uh, uh, firing them from their jobs so they, they don't have uh, access to the same uh, resources. Uh, uh, new, new ways of organizing ha have to develop. Uh, so do you think that the um, cultural push in the Western world towards extreme individualism uh, is is a thinly veiled attempt and basically at basically implementing this isolation so that people don't trust each other yeah. and and refuse to organize. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, 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 that's at the heart of of um, uh, preventing organization. Uh, in the 1930s, uh, there was a religious movement calling called Moral Rearmament. Uh, that organization still exists, but it was a, a Christian uh, movement. Uh, with branches uh, still in this country and in Europe, uh, religious reasons uh, why uh, you should uh, destroy unions. Uh, but uh, it applies to any kind of social 
uh, uh, progress, uh, making making change that uh, impinges on the corporations and banks. Right, but at the same time, organized religion is probably like a prime example of 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 like a you know organization, right? Of getting people into groups and getting them to act upon a common goal. So it could go either way, right? If it's on, if it's in the right hands, organization can be very powerful and and, and uh, impetus for change. But if it, if it gets compromised from within by agents of the powers that be and whatnot, then people can be duped into sort of. They think they're working towards the common good, but in reality, they're just maintaining the status quo. Um, yeah, the, the, the CIA and the FBI are uh, several stages ahead of everyone organizing anything you think of. Uh, they've got it covered, like Occupy Wall Street. Uh, they put organizers in who... Uh, help to prevent uh, any constructive uh, organizational outcome, but they had snipers uh, on the roofs uh, ready to kill the leaders if anyone organized something that actually led to action. Well, like, okay. So, so what would be? I mean, I'm trying to. I guess because w- w- the, uh, regular people are aware of that as well. Many of them. So th- they they seem to have a choice between taking the risk at organizing and participating in a group um, and then this group being undermined and they're working now they're working in favor of the empire versus you know avoiding participation in a bad activity which you, you have also spoken in favor of in the past uh, but then but then not really having enough power to to enact change because they're on their own where is the is there a middle ground or the, would it depend every single time on the situation um I think it will change as cultural ideas evolve, but I think the first thing is to just start lots of organizations, two or three people in a group deciding on possible courses of action and creating networks of just little personal interaction groups, but uh, uh, linking them up uh, and uh, uh, being being aware that uh, the organizations uh, have to uh, stay flexible in terms of of, uh, basically about about a a million little groups uh, with openness to interact with other groups. Uh, on different levels. So basically create a large number of smaller organizations that will be much harder to subvert just because the FBI doesn't have that manpower, that much manpower. Uh, uh, yeah, th- th- they've had, uh, I-, I don't know, may- maybe a million people uh, uh, attending to uh, breaking up organizations. But if you have two million little groups developing, <laughs> uh, it will... Uh, over, overwhelm their their manpower advantage. Uh, like the communists used to say that uh, for every actual communist party member, there were two or three FBI <laughs> agents. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's what sounds about right. <laughs> well, it seems like the uh, the FBI's ability and the CIA's ability to infiltrate movements is is like Co Intel Pro and um, I don't know if Ru- Ruby Ridge and like. Uh, 
and like promoting domestic terror and stuff or getting people to do things they otherwise wouldn't do. Like what was that famous quote that like the FBI is behind most terrorist attacks in the U.S. or, or something like that? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that has been uh, documented over and over. Uh, uh, the people throwing rocks in demonstrations are, are usually local yeah. police or FBI. Yeah. What, the, what was it? The Ferguson? Uh, was Am I thinking of the right place? But there are provocateurs like breaking windows and they were flown in on planes to go like cause havoc during peaceful protests and stuff. So, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, like in the Ukraine, uh, uh, there were oh, yeah, yeah. snipers uh, uh, shoot, shooting yeah. both sides. <laughs> and then people are so politically charged that they can't kind of see the forest for the trees. And then, so it, it's like this bad ideology on top of the the corruption and the infiltration of both sides. Oh, I want to talk a little bit about, about consciousness. Let's, I don't know if, let's, if, you, if we're done with yeah, politics. Let's, let's finish politics. Let's talk about consciousness. So we're uh, uh, up to about two hours. And so, Ray, I don't want to keep you all day. Let's uh, kind of end on consciousness. And we have like 250 people listening right now. So, Ray, uh, Georgie, thank you so much for making this possible. Uh, obviously, a special live stream. So, yeah, go for it, Georgie. Um, yeah, in, in, in one of your books, actually, I think it was the mind and tissue where you said that consciousness at its very basis is the orienting reflex, right? Um, yeah. So my question is relates to um, physiologically, what does that look like? Because there have been a number of studies coming out recently that are saying we, uh, that medicine and neurology have been looking at consciousness the wrong way. They're calling it the hard problem of consciousness because by analyzing the brain and all of the interactions of the neurons – they can't possibly explain the richness of personal experience, and they're calling this thing qualia. Um, and now they're proposing that maybe it's consciousness that's fundamental, and it's a property of matter. It just varies in terms of its complexity depending on the object or you know the piece of matter that we're actually observing. So there's an uh, ancient Hindu proverb which says that the spirit of God sleeps in stone, dreams in animals, and awakens in men. So my question is, do you, how do you see that, that statement that, that consciousness is potentially a very basic property of matter and it's, it's, the, it's the complexity of the structure of this matter that determines how high level of this consciousness would be? Does that sound about right? I, I, exactly. I formulated it that way. 1957, I think, was the first time I said uh, consciousness is the organized uh, flow of energy through matter, but I have revised it to think of of consciousness as a, a substance in itself, uh, since uh, substances uh, are defined empirically, matter is defined empirically uh, as we uh, experience it. Uh, I think it's proper to think of consciousness as a substance. Uh, the the uh, for example, uh, the uh, donor uh, acceptor uh, molecules uh, contributing uh, an electron uh, flowing through muscle causes it to contract. I think that same donor acceptor relationship activates a, a, a constant uh, oscillation uh, of excited electrons through 
the, the neurons and between the neurons even uh, that these uh, it's a, a substance uh, uh, analogous to the conductive electron bands in metal but it's uh, the electrons are existing uh, on the, the soft uh, cytoplasmic material uh, when when the energy is properly activated by uh, the oxidative acceptor function, uh, raising electrons, uh, 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 cre creating holes basically for electrons to flow through the properly oxidized substance. Uh, uh, it, it's like having having a, a fire get wet when you have too many electrons. It fills the holes and uh, uh, prevents the uh, the luminous uh, function. Uh, the perfume guy, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, uh, Tonini? Was it Tonini or no? Uh, 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 no. Uh, uh, Starts with a T, who was given, T, I think. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, he uh, sees uh, odors as uh, being resonance uh, of, of the molecule, uh, not the, the shape of Lu the molecule, but the electronic uh, 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 ability to, to, to resonate. And uh, that is uh, uh, going back to uh, P.K. Anokin, uh, for example. Uh, I, I think he saw his acceptor of action uh, consciousness uh, model as existing as an excited electron uh, substance uh, which follows uh, the rules of, of Gestalt psychology, uh, actually space-filling uh, material of, of electron uh, of sort of a plasma uh, uh, actually uh, being what we experience, uh, uh, the uh, the the light that we experience as, as red, white, blue, green, and so on. Uh, I think there is actually that uh, frequency uh, resonating in our our brain tissue, uh, uh, an odor. Uh, uh, I, I believe the actual chemical pattern of that odor is what we uh, experience. Uh, the consciousness of, of smelling a chemical, that structure exists in space. Uh, and uh, each of the senses, uh, I, I think, uh, involves uh, the, uh, uh, the cer certain uh, uh, frequency or, or en energy level uh, of the electrons uh, so that uh, touch uh, uh, has a, a, a limited uh, spatial uh, ability. To, uh, the, the vision uh, is uh, uh, the one that tends to, to be uh, coherent, uh, forming uh, uh, co complexly uh, cohering uh, structures of meaning. So if I understand it correctly, as a result of metabolism, there is a directed electron flow from food to oxygen, right? 
and that that donor acceptor relationship causes the molecules in the cells to vibrate and uh, and and if they vibrate at the same frequency i'm guessing certain amount of uh, like a minimum i guess a base number of neurons if they vibrate at the same frequency that creates a resonance field which is i guess the basis of consciousness and the qualia yeah in one of his books uh, pk noken uh, goes through a, a series of articles uh, showing that uh, the mechanical uh, behavior of the auditory nerve for example uh, can't carry the information that we actually experience flowing in on the auditory nerve uh, 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 he uh, has various arguments showing that uh, uh, much more information is carried per per second uh, than uh, nerve firing could possibly account for uh, so it, it isn't information it's actually the substance that that we are experiencing so given the infinite richness of experience um, and you know and, and the infinite richness of quality wouldn't that imply that the brain cells will be capable of resonating in almost any frequency in order to reproduce that infinite richness of reality I, I know that the frequencies have to be tuned very exactly uh, uh, and something uh, like the psychedelics uh, can in effect uh, create uh, new uh, uh, more extensive pathways, but I, I think the frequencies are all the same. It's just uh, lubricating new new connections that, that become uh, uh, richer. So you're saying potentially the same frequency could create the experience of the color green, and then, and then a different type of resonance, but with the same frequency could create the experience of listening to Mozart or something like that. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the green comes in all degrees of saturation, mere green or a psychedelic uh, a full uh, full uh, spectrum uh, green uh, uh, with meaning. Uh, it resonates over into uh, uh, the, the feeling of, of religious meaning or uh, uh, the the uh, intensity of 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 the meaning it isn't just uh, one one frequency one meaning it, it's the uh, intensity and saturation uh, of that particular frequency uh, and and the the uh, then the, the architectural uh, structures built on those uh, uh, so you could perceive. Mozart or Beethoven, uh, almost at the level of uh, descriptive, uh, rational uh, listening, or you could uh, have uh, a full energy flow, uh, like a, a hi-fi consciousness, uh, where uh, everything, uh, all of the uh, uh, senses are, are resonating full, uh, full intensity. So basically, the range of frequencies that the brain is capable of producing is limited, but their combination is is infinite. So that's what. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, according to Van uh, the uh, auditory frequencies <clears throat> are we're actually transmitting <clears throat> the the full range 
uh, uh, frequencies. Uh, and uh, a young person uh, uh, can actually uh, uh, experience uh, all the way up to 35 or 40,000 cycles per second, uh, like, like a porpoise. Uh, and uh, those are, are actually uh, uh, tuned processes of the electrons uh, resonating at those actual frequencies. Uh, and uh, the frequencies of nerve firing uh, are uh, nothing, nothing really related to consciousness. They are uh, uh, like, like the infrastructure of maintaining energy production and substance distribution. But the experience is uh, floating over the infrastructure. So speaking of resonance, um, and um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the with the publications of uh, Rupert Sheldrake, I think is his name, uh, about the morphogenetic fields and how we're essentially tapping into the same pool of knowledge and any single person learning enriches that pool of knowledge and then any other person could actually tap into that and sort of get access to that to that new knowledge. Um, he, so he's in he's in this morphogenic uh, tradition going all the way back to Goethe and uh, earlier, but uh, it, it's a it's the actual uh, living side of science, not the abstract uh, militarist Platonist side of science. So if two people are resonating, so to speak, if their consciousness are resonating. Um, and almost merging in a sense, is there a limit to, to the distance that these people can be separated with in order for this to occur? Or is this like a global universal phenomenon no matter where these consciousness-capable pieces of matter are? Uh, um, uh, Puharich, uh, did you ever read any of his books? Uh, uh, Andrea Puharich? Uh, I haven't. Henry. Um, he... Uh, I think makes a satisfactory case for the uh, uh, the, the whole Earth uh, uh, re resonance and uh, the, the um, I, I think that the communication uh, can probably be called uh, carried on uh, like a carrier wave on the Earth's. Uh, uh, resonance frequencies uh, mod modulating. I, I think each brain can uh, modulate that carrier wave of the Earth's uh, electromagnetic field. So the Schumann resonance frequencies could potentially be those carrier waves that allow for the unification of consciousness of organisms on Earth? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, the Canadian uh, psychologist who invented the God helmet uh, an electronic uh, helmet that stimulated the brain so that people had religious experiences. Person, yeah. Uh, he uh, suggests that it, it's, we're tapping into the, the planetary carrier wave. Okay, so s since we're on the uh, sort of like resonance of consciousness in distance, uh, as as you've written many times about David Baum, and I'm a great fan of his of his work and writings, he was writing that it's actually a universal consciousness that we're all part of, and that there is a guiding pilot wave slash carrier wave, um, of which all of us are minor offshoots. 
I, I didn't hear who you said. David Baum, the quantum physicist. Oh, 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 oh yeah, yeah. And he was basically saying that there's two kinds of order, the implicate order and the explicate or order. And then the explicate, the explicate order arises out of the infinite implicate order in a creative manner, right? And we talked about this, this, this uh, uh, process of constant creation of both matter and meaning and knowledge. How do we participate in this creative process? Because do we do we also create matter ourselves? I mean, I know the the Earth does, the stars do, right? And probably the ethereal uh, uh, medium of the universe itself does. But how do we participate in that creative process? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he, David uh, Baum was I, was of the opinion that we are we are integral to the creative process of the universe, but unfortunately he didn't elaborate how. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I intuit that that's true, but I don't know how either. Uh, but uh, I, I think it is most closely connected to this uh, electronic uh, jelly substance of consciousness or, or whatever is, is flowing through uh, any any substance according to its structure, uh, but uh, the, the N.A. Kozirov uh, noticed that uh, entities in the universe—stars, planets, moons, and so on—were emitting energy in proportion to their mass, and he believed that the passage of time was. Uh, uh, a source of energy, uh, but, uh, but that that simply uh, says that that energy uh, c comes out of the system, whatever matter is. But uh, he uh, didn't have all of the uh, planets' mass accurately connected to what was known about their emission of heat, but um, it, just in recent years, uh, that was uh, about 60 years ago he wrote that, but just in recent years, uh, the, the satellites have measured the emission of the outer big planets and found that uh, the, the, there is an anomalous energy that corresponds to the mass uh, rather than uh, their, their position from the sun. Uh, so it, it's a big confirmation of Kozirov's uh, idea that the mere passage of time uh, and uh, any any mass is going to be uh, emitting energy. So it's, it's like we're all a, a fountain of energy uh, of some sort. Uh, and uh, so a question on Kozirev and, and stars, because actually that was one of my, that was the top question that I was going to ask you tonight, and, and you brought it up yourself. Um, as you know, he did a lot of experiments on, on measuring and creating time based on different processes. So dissipating processes that basically emit heat, he said that they produce time, and that other processes that are sort of, um, you know, dropping in temperature, they can actually accept time, they can absorb time. So what, what do you think time is uh, in terms of a, of a, of a physical entity? Um, my best guess is that <clears throat> Horace Dudley uh, was right, and he uh, described it 
as the the neutrino C. At, at that time, uh, uh, neutrinos were thought to have no energy, but he uh, proposed that they do have energy uh, and that uh, they uh, associate uh, with matter according to its mass uh, and uh, uh, that uh, nuclear, so-called nuclear energy uh, is uh, converting uh, in conventional thinking, converting mass to energy, or in in this uh, view, uh, it's simply being through time, uh, passing uh, passing through time as a mass uh, that uh, uh, allows these uh, uh, neutrinos to interact, uh, and uh, crystals. Uh, Horace Dudley suggested that the crystalline structure uh, of uh, matter uh, was uh, in some way in in charge uh, of how the uh, neutrinos resonate. Uh, that uh, there there's a a space filling resonance of neutrinos corresponding to the uh, orderly arrangement uh, of crystals that he suggested uh, could uh, cause nuclear reactions to uh, occur unpredicted. Uh, And uh, simultaneously with his proposing that theory, an experimental uh, physicist named Anderson uh, observed that a monolayer of uh, carbon isotopes uh, on aluminum foil had a non-random nuclear decay. Uh, 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 Dudley had predicted that sort of thing, that an orderly arrangement of matter, such as a surface, would interact with the uh, neutrino C in a way that would draw on the energy of the nucleus. but um, anyway, my inference from those two bits of data uh, is that the the brain, this structure of donor acceptor uh, activated uh, uh, gel of electrons. Uh, my uh, idea <clears throat> is that uh, this structure of the brain is like the the surface of the aluminum foil uh, able to tap into the the uh, energy of the neutrino C uh, and uh, uh, this this is where the uh, introduction of of novelty as well as uh, energy uh, com- comes from understood um i read a interpretation of aristotle recently that said that uh, it was by a quantum physicist, and he said that everybody has struggled with the definition of time, of what time is and how it relates to us. And apparently Aristotle got pretty close. He said in one of his writings, apparently, I haven't seen the actual one, but he said that time is simply the amount of potentiality that has converted to actuality for any given system. Do you? Does that sound about right? Sounds right. <laughs> okay, and last question related to consciousness. If the stars are perhaps the most intense um, entities with the most intense metabolism, for lack of a better word, would you say that they possess 
a, a type of consciousness, perhaps even higher than ours? I, I, I would think a galaxy, uh, uh, the um, uh, streaming uh, shape uh, creating uh, forces uh, of galaxies uh, are uh, probably conscious. Uh, there, there's no more streaming energy through matter than than a galaxy in action. But I think our our brains are rivaling the galaxies for the complexity of of activated substance that we're trying to imitate the galaxy energy with actual physical. Uh, creation of, of substance uh, at at the edge of of the process. That's remarkable. I, I don't know if you if, if you know, but Aristotle said that uh, in his in his classification there were very few pure actualities, and he said that uh, humans, galaxies, stars, and I think he mentioned one other thing cosmological. I'm forgetting what it is, but in his view, they, those were the only actualities. So he was placing them at the same the same level. I'm guessing at, at in terms of development as you are. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Okay. So, <laughs> I don't have any other questions. Speaking <laughs> cover, of, this is neither it. here nor there. But have you guys? There's like a special type of camera that's uh, fairly new that can accurately zoom in on stars and planets. And the footage these people are taking of the stars and planets looks literally like nothing I've ever seen before. But they look like big balls of uh, kind of uh, multicolored energy. Like, that's how I would describe it. But, uh, Ray, are you familiar with that at all? Uh, no. I'll, I'll forward you with them. But it's like, uh, it's a lot of the flat Earth people use it to say that NASA is lying about everything. But uh, I think it's just interesting that we're actually, like, uh, just random people are able to take... Uh, really uh, interesting video of stars. Okay, so I guess we'll end it there. Let me just read. Uh, so, Ray, I don't know if you how, if you know how it works, but people do super chats, and uh, a, a big group of people have uh, accumulated $794. So whatever YouTube takes of that, I will forward to you, Ray, and I appreciate you being on here. And let me just read. I, we won't be able to get to people's questions because that would we would be on here for hours. And so Oscar Gomez, Oscar Gomez, TC, Intelligent Evolution, Anna uh, Tanska, Intelligent Evolution, Christina Tomaj, uh, Matthew Riley, Matthew Riley again, uh, Ruth Kazo, Kirk uh, 333, Zuberg, Kirk 333 again, Chris H., Harrison Ben, uh, Jean F uh, Philippe, uh, Gro uh, Kindsign, I'm, I'm butchering that name, uh, Matthew Riley, uh, Harry Burgos, Harrison Ben, Harrison Ben again, uh, uh, Francis Bacon Cheeseburger, uh, Harrison Ben, Sandy, <laughs> Miss, uh, Miss T, uh, Roger Chair, HT, uh, New Health, Michael, Veronica Ayala, New Health, Veronica Ayala again, uh, Yanni Matraskastas, uh, Elliot Cactus, Elliot Cactus again, huge Ray Pete fan, huge Ray Pete fan again, Milk and Honey, Milk and Honey again, Milk and Honey, uh, multiple super chats from Milk and Honey. Thank you for that. Monty did multiple super chats. Thank you for that. Uh, Geo, thank you for that. Turkish Postman, I think we just got one more. DBO514. Uh, thank you guys so much. I apologize for not being able to read your questions. Georgie and I can like devote an entire episode to trying to answer these questions. Um, 
Any parting words, uh, Ray? Can you tell people how to obtain your newsletter? Um, you, you can email newsletter at gmail.com and see if you can have people uh, come up with ideas and create new organizations. I love it. I love it. So, and then Georgie, any parting words? Um, a question for Dr. Pete in terms of ideas for scientific studies that he he thinks are worth replicating. I mean, I'm, um, I haven't mentioned it. Uh, I mentioned previous uh, podcasts with Danny, but I, I'm privileged enough to start being able to make my own studies. And I'm was thinking of doing one on, on essential fatty acid depletion and trying to prove that all of the, because uh, there's only one by the Burrs in the 1930s. So I'm trying to prove that really all of these symptoms of fatty acid, essential fatty acid deficiency that they were seeing um, were just, you know, deficiencies of specific nutrients and maybe insufficient amount of calories and things like that. Anything else, any, any other seminal idea that you think is really currently being twisted and poisoning the scientific and the medical world that we can try and test and sort of show the exact opposite? If I think of something, I'll contact you. <laughs> okay. Understood. Thank you. Awesome. Ray, stay on the line. I'm going to uh, kind of wrap things up. Guys, thank you so much. Like 250 people in the uh, chat right now. Guys, sincerely appreciate it. Thank you so much to Ray for making this possible and just being uh, endless uh, inspiration, you know, and such a humble guy. And I, I'm sure I don't, I can't speak for only for myself, but changing so many people's lives. And thank you, Georgie, for doing the show with me so often. And this is just a special live stream. So thank you guys so much for making this possible. Ray, stay on the line. We'll talk to you after. And I'm going to wrap things up here. Uh, everybody, thank you so much. We'll see you guys. And I'll see you next week, I think, with Tim. Okay, guys, take care. Thank you.